We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Sean Su. Great to be back. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing plans by US biotech company Moderna to establish a subsidiary in Taiwan, uh, moves to grant migrant workers a permanent residency, China's state media labelling two KMT lawmakers as being secret Taiwanese independence advocates, and good news for sleepy high school students who can now start classes or will soon be able to start classes a wee bit later. But we'll begin with news this week that the World Health Organization-led clinical trial of Taiwan's domestically produced Medigen coronavirus vaccine could be unblinded next month at the earliest. Now, the protein subunit vaccine is currently being tested under the WHO's Phase 3 Solidarity Trial of Vaccines program. And according to Medigen Vice Chairman and CEO Charles Chen, unblinding of the clinical trial would likely determine whether the global health body recommends the vaccine for use against the coronavirus. Now, research Teams in Colombia, Mali and the Philippines recruited volunteers for the Solidarity Trial vaccines in late September of last year. And the WHO is saying the program is seeking to rapidly evaluate the efficiency and safety of promising new candidate coronavirus vaccines. Now, the Medigen vice chairman also told reporters this week at a press conference in Taipei that validation of the vaccine means the brand will be able to expand to the Central and South American region as well as to the Southeast Asian markets. And he went on to say that it will also increase the possibility that Medigen's vaccine will be granted emergency use authorization by other countries. While Health Minister Chen Chou-Jong is saying the government is considering donating part of its stock of approximately 3 million Medigen doses to other countries. Now, the WHO has so far issued an emergency use authorization listings for 10 coronavirus vaccines. But only Taiwan, Paraguay and Somaliland have to date granted EUAs for the Medigen vaccine. So, Sean, I mean, Medigen's vice chairman there is stressing that validation of the vaccine will mean basically it becomes globally accepted, which is a good thing for the company. While no doubt others, such as the government, well, they'll be happy as well because no doubt they'll be hoping that the move dispels criticism of the Medigen vaccine by naysayers here in Taiwan. Well, uh, the criticism is obviously pushed a lot by for, for political reasons as well. Uh, also, uh, there's, I guess, less confidence because the other vaccines have been rolled out about seven times more than than the doses in Taiwan in terms of Taiwan's ca- uh, vaccine rollout just in Taiwan. Uh, that said, in the, the reports of problems with Medigen have been rather... Uh, reported rather low as well and i would say even if you multiply them by seven the figures are actually very very good uh only beaten by pfizer bnt so uh in general uh i i'm actually pretty happy about this and they're also hoping to produce uh, over 100 million uh by the end of the year which would be great because in terms of taiwan diplomacy well, 40% of the world still needs their first shot. So this might be a great opportunity for Taiwan to really get uh, get its name even more out there. Yeah, I mean, I think Sean's pretty well summed that up. Um, you know, it's definitely a good start, I, and it definitely will help to, uh, in diplomacy. I, I think at this point we still need to... I, I, think it, I feel like this is going a little bit too slow. It's been... Uh, in trials now for quite a while. Um, 
but compared to the others, well, you know, I, the thing is, the, a lot of the other companies like Moderna and Pfizer, and the, these already have kind of a head start, and they're already quite well known. But, you know, again, it's, it's good that Taiwan is one of the few countries on the planet that now is also producing uh, vaccines. What I'm kind of excited about is I believe it was Academia Seneca recently announced that they have one that they, you know, they start used uh, later versions of, of the coronavirus, including Omicron, in the development of another vaccine, which would be u- useful against multiple, uh, multiple variants uh, of uh, of the coronavirus, whereas the Metagen and most of the others are all were originally all structured around the original variant. So I think that could be a, a really big uh, step forward because there's only a, a few companies around the world that are working on advanced versions of vaccines that cover uh, multiple variants. So I, I think that that's really what I'm more excited about than, rather than the Metagen one. And of course, Sean, do you think Medigen could work towards developing second types or second stage vaccines for the coronavirus or third stage vaccines for the coronavirus if the WHO accepts their current vaccine? Uh, I'm actually not that familiar with the process in which, uh, you know, one vaccine automatically allow a spe- a spe- fast tracks than the newer versions, but uh, it would definitely build more trust. And that's the first step in allowing local and other places to accept the first beat you know, outside of the WHO, because just because the WHO, uh, many vaccines actually were distributed far before uh, uh, earlier than WHO uh, clinical testing. So, uh, you know, if this metagen does go well, then future versions, which they are working on, uh, will probably be more widely accepted sooner. And that leads to more data, which may lead to faster, in that case, faster WHO acceptance. And of course, Donovan, good for Taiwan's biotech sector. Yeah, um, and of course, <laughs> if you know your history, of course, uh, President Tsai has uh, had a little bit of a hand in the uh, somewhat controversially in uh, in the biotech sector. Uh, but she, uh, her government has been focused. That's one of the areas that the government has been focusing on and trying to develop here for Taiwan. And so it's good to see that some of this is bearing fruit. And of course, Moderna on Wednesday, Donovan announced that it plans to establish subsidiaries in four Asian countries and territories, including Taiwan. And of course, Moderna, famous for its coronavirus vaccine, is a U.S. biotech company. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is they uh, they said they want to. And the way they put it is that they want to cooperate with local hospitals and regulators directly to provide vaccines. Now, of course, that's a good sign, uh, but the government here is apparently moving ahead with plans so that they can set up a company 49% owned by, uh, 49% or less owned by the government and the rest by private entities because they're trying to set up a, a, a corporate entity to get uh, technology transfer, but Moderna has been kind of cagey on whether they'll actually do that. Uh, but they're setting up in uh, their subsidiaries in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Malaysia, and Singapore. And it's good because at the end of the day, that does mean that in the future, and uh, hopefully that means that there'll be faster rollout of medicines, uh, and they will be on the ground and able to cooperate. So it'll, it'll mean a smoother transition going forward for any new introductions of any new vaccines or medicines in general coming from Moderna. 
And Sean, of course, the health minister this week, said that authorities here in Taiwan open to the potential opportunities for cooperation and collaboration with Moderna. I think medical companies are pretty uh, cagey about sharing technology, and I do know that we really want that technology transfer <laughs> in any way possible because, uh, you know, mRNA it does represent a very good and fast and new means of, uh, um, you know, creating vaccines and all sorts of other uh, related medicines. Thing is. I, you know, this is a hope, but I don't think it's going to happen, really. So, you know, cooperation sounds great in terms of distribution and logistics, but I don't think uh, cooperation will happen in terms of technology transfer because that is their bread and butter. So they would definitely try to hold on to it as best as they could. But of course, they would be manufacturing vaccines here, possibly, which possibly, means yeah. Taiwan could get them a lot quicker than it did with these coronavirus vaccines, Donovan. Yeah, um, I mean, the key word is possibly here um you know and again that's what i was referring to earlier is that you know if they even if they don't manufacture here if they've got a presence on the ground because they're going to be hiring uh they're going to be uh, hiring people here locally and they're going to be working with local hospitals on clinical trials is that by having a presence on the ground and you know liaising with the local medical establishment it does open up the possibility of more future speedier introduction uh, and more integration with the company on uh, clinical trials, introducing new medicines, um, upgrading them. It's it's always good to have a, a, a relationship with the kind of company that helps keep a lot of people alive. So, you know, by them having local people integrated into their company and relationships built with uh, with local companies, with local people, with the local establishment, that does mean that they're, they Taiwan will potentially has something of a leg up on other countries which doesn't have those relationships. And moving away from vaccines now, and the cabinet this week approved a proposal by the Ministry of Labour to provide a pathway to permanent residency for both migrant workers and foreign students. Now, the plan will allow for permanent residency applications by migrant workers and foreign associate degree graduates employed in the fishing, manufacturing, construction, and agriculture, food farming sectors, also as caregivers. The move is part of efforts to relieve the shortage of what the government's saying calling intermediate skilled manpower and the plan is now expected to go into effect in april of this year now employers of eligible individuals will have to reclassify them as intermediate skilled manpower migrant workers will then be eligible for reclassification if they've been employed in the designated fields for at least six years after which they would have to work another five years at that level before they can apply for the permanent residency status while foreign nationals who graduate from a college with an associate degree can be classified immediately as intermediate skilled manpower on their first job once they're earning at least 30,000 NT per month on the first contract. They can then apply for permanent residency after five years of employment if their salary is at least 50,500 NT per month. Now the cabinet is saying that it hopes that Taiwan can retain 80,000 experienced migrant workers and about the same number of student graduates by 2030. So Donovan, uh, look, seems to be a bit iffy on paper, this policy, because, of course, migrant workers have long, long been denied residency here. Yeah, um, this is the way this is the way it works. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, we're we're foreign nationals and we've been around for a while and we, we've seen the pattern. And what they do is they open up the door only very, very slightly. 
so that a tiny number of people will qualify. But what that does is it sets a precedent. And once that precedent is set, then a few years down the line, they revisit it, and then they open the door just a tiny crack wider. But by the existing, if you look at the, the, the amount of time put in, the amount of you know, the salary requirements, all of these different things, that will add up to basically zero people. Um, I, I'm obviously being uh, exaggerating slightly, but the number of people that would qualify and are willing to go through all those hoops and the companies are willing to pay that high, those higher salaries, we're looking at a vanishingly small number of people that will qualify and actually go through this process. Um, so this is more symbolic and a breaking of the ice, I think, more than an actual practical, reasonable, or feasible uh, policy. But again, it means that next time they want to make an incremental step, it's an incremental step from this base. And that tends to be the way they do it here. They, they don't make big jumps forward. I, I've never seen in the entire time I've been here any really major step taken uh, to, to help bring in foreigners here, uh, any step that has been what you'd consider a major jump. It's always a little incremental push forward, a little incremental push forward, and then over a couple of decades, you know, then it might become relatively common. But at this point, uh, you know, it's going to help a tiny number of people. There's another major problem, and that is that other company or countries in the region, uh, such as Japan, pay far better than Taiwan does. Um, and some countries now, uh, such as Vietnam in particular, what's happening is is that their, their home economies are uh, sucking up a lot of employment. So Taiwan is not necessarily getting the best uh, because lo hiring locally in Vietnam and in these other countries, and then of course other countries that pay better than Taiwan are getting are getting uh, some of the best. And so what's happening is Taiwan is not getting is not anyone's first choice. Mostly they want to stay home or go to these other countries. So while there's still people coming and there's still people qualifying. Taiwan still is nowhere near competitive enough to really bring in the very best and brightest. And if they really want the, if they were really serious about the new southbound policy here, they'd start it here at home because right now uh, we're just shy of 700,000 uh, workers here from mostly three countries. And they're major southbound uh, policy countries. And th that's a lot of people who spread word. If anything goes wrong, it ends up in the papers in their home countries. But while the new southbound policy does all kinds of worthy things, and they send out doctors and boost trade and uh, agricultural initiatives and these kinds of things, those generally don't make the papers in those countries. But when I, for example, here in Taichung, if an Indonesian woman is raped, that will make the newspaper uh, in Indonesia, and that brings a lot of negative attention to Taiwan. If Taiwan were to uh, improve the conditions, improve the treatment, uh, and really start integrating people in more in a more positive way, pay a little bit better, I think you'd start to see a lot more of a positive impression of Taiwan in the media in these countries. 
And that would have set off a positive feedback mechanism, both diplomatically, economically, um, and in terms of soft power. And it would help Taiwan's economy because then we'd start getting hopefully more and and better qualified people here rather than going to other countries. So I, I really think that this is, while it's, it's, I'm glad to see they're making a tiny step forward, really they need to push up the pace because Taiwan's population is already starting to fall and they really don't have time to wait. Yeah, I totally agree with Donovan. I mean, you were asking people for to wait to, to, to work in Taiwan for 11 years. Now, it has to be said, first of all, the minimum wage is approximately 25,250 Taiwan dollars a month uh, for migrant workers. And the average was 30,541 as of January 2022. So this means that without having a requirement that workers, uh, migrant workers need to make 33,000 per month is quite a challenge because they're, they're, they have to, on average, earn almost 3,000 more than they already are now. So that already cuts it down. And they have to work for six years. Now, it's not clear if they can have any pauses, if, if it can be with different companies. But knowing the brokerage system in Taiwan, that is already a very far cry. So then you're cutting down. It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm watching like a twisted labor version of uh, Squid Game, where you just see numbers just fall and fall. And then they have to earn 50k per year after for five more years. Uh, why would a factory or, a, you know, a, a company pay twice the average for this almost twice the average for a worker? It's highly unlikely, especially if it's blue collar. This person would have to work basically the labor of two people to be paid that much reliably and for 11 years roughly that is a long time that's time missed you know having a family that's time missed going back to family so uh, i think yeah like donovan said they open slowly slowly but surely but it has to be way better than this um uh you know i don't know how much time they're going to take but it has to be fast if the new southbound policy in this area will work and Sean, do you think the government's maybe doing it step by step, slowly, slowly? So there's no, there's no kickback from the local people who sort of scream the usual, they're taking our jobs. Uh, <laughs> this will will not. I mean, if anybody screams that they're going to be taking our, our, our they're taking our jobs uh, for something like this, I, I doubt it. It's, it's not very. Uh, I do agree with you that in the sense that yes, they're probably doing it so there wouldn't be as much criticism, uh, you know, and then slowly opening the door. Uh, you know, Taiwan has had racist events in the past. I remember many years ago there was a town just because they wanted to build some temporary housing for a project there that a town actually uh, said horrible things uh, in their fear of having some migrant workers in their neighborhood. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I do agree that that's what, exactly what they're doing. And of course, Donovan, keeping migrant workers to live, companies insisting they live in dormitories on site is not something that would enamour someone that wants to move to a country to actually move there and live there. Uh, what? You wouldn't want to live in a little tiny cubicle with uh, six other people? <laughs> you know, gosh, what's, what's so unappealing about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, now not all companies, to be fair, uh, insist on on-site dormitory living, um, but it tends to be, but some companies do, uh, some companies don't. Um, 
but a lot of them, it, it's really the only feasible thing, at least initially when they move here, because other options are even more expensive. Um, but in, and some companies are quite evil about this in that they require them to live in dormitories and then they charge them ridiculous rents. Other companies are a little more reasonable. They offer it as an option. They charge somewhat more reasonable rents. But uh, pe- you know, they can find alternatives if they, uh, if they want to. But yeah, th- there's a lot of these sorts of things where they, when they're, they're disincentives to come here in the first place or disincentives to stay for very long. Now, as for the, I think Sean made a good point about the salaries, the, the minimum salaries is a major problem in that they, they need to be somebody already fairly qualified for what the company needs here before they're going to give them 33000 for six years in the first place. But if you find somebody here that is really, really qualified, they might be willing to pay them 50000 because there's a lot of trades now where young people aren't going into them. They're specialist technical trades, um, you know, working certain types of machinery, having certain uh, skills in developing uh, factory techniques where they may become very, very, very invaluable to the company that employs them because they don't have anyone else with anywhere near the skill or knowledge. And I, sus- I suspect that there were certain companies who are saying, look, we have some of these really good people and we can't keep them because of the current regulations. So the government responded by saying, okay, for your very, very absolute best, most qualified, absolutely must keep people, here is a path to keep them. I think that's the wrong attitude, um, in spite of being glad that that's an improvement. I think that Taiwan, instead of being grudgingly uh, saying, okay, well, if you're willing to pay a ton of money and wait 11 years, then we'll give them a, you know, we'll, then we'll allow them to become residents. Whereas I think that Taiwan should be targeting, we should be trying to get these people because once these people have come in, they've learned the skills, they've learned the trades, and this traditionally is how Taiwan's economy expanded. People would go in initially way, 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 way back in the day, Taiwanese would work for a Japanese company or an American company. They learned, uh, their, they learned the skills, they learned the trades, and then they went out on their own, started their own companies, and then employed a whole bunch more people. That's how uh, a lot of these company, major companies uh, in Taiwan all got started. Or they go back to their home countries and you know open up a branch office or do uh, trade with Taiwan. So Taiwan, I think, economically, just for pure economic self-interest, I think should be, instead of grudgingly and making it really difficult to allow them to integrate into Taiwan's economy, I think they should be actively encouraging them uh, to join into Taiwan's economy and to try and bring in the best of these skilled tradesmen and uh, skilled uh, workers and those who uh, you know have an entrepreneurial sp- spirit and are are the potential for the economy. So I, I, I feel like they're kind of going about it way too slow and kind of backwards. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials.
Welcome back to Taiwan this week. And KMT chairman Eric Ju had some rather choice words for China's state media after it accused two of the party's lawmakers of being secret Taiwanese independence advocates. Now, China's political consultative daily accused lawmakers Lin Weizhou and Charles Chen of being members of an alleged secret faction of independence advocates working within the KMT. And it went on to claim that both Lin and Chen collude with international anti-China forces. Now, Eric Ju was a bit miffed by all of that and taken to his Facebook page, the KMT chairman said that he cannot agree with the claim and believes the article was part of Beijing's wolf warrior or aggressive style of coercive diplomatic pressure that sees enemies everywhere. And Ju went on to say that he deeply regrets the tone of the article and he stressed that it's the KMT's position to defend the Republic of China and give priority to the interests of the Taiwanese people. For their part, both Lin and Chen are reiterating their full support for the Republic of China, with Lin telling reporters that the ROC is a sovereign and independent country, and if Beijing considers that to be Taiwanese independence, then it's simply describing the option, or the opinions rather, of a vast majority of the island's population. Although Chen did not comment directly on the report, when pushed for a reaction, he did tell reporters that he's the biggest supporter of the Republic of China, while at the same time being the biggest opponent of independence. And the DPP also described the article by saying that China's political <coughs> consultative daily was basically solely working to provoke and divide Taiwanese society. So, Sean, two KMT lawmakers that you could really hardly call what Beijing called them. <laughs> yeah, I actually fully agree. Uh, first of all, I need to say that uh, the latest news is that this article was deleted. So that tells you how botched it was on the China side. And, you know, there has been some PR, other earlier PRC academics suggesting so, too, which is which I think is uh, personally, I feel it's that uh, ethno-nationalism has gone out of control in China to the point where even the KMT is deemed too independent uh, by saying that you know, oh, these two. Now, these two are special. First of all, I, I want to talk about Charles, uh, Dr. Charles Chen. He previously ran ITAS, which is a U.S. think tank that was mainly a, a KMT PR firm, along with Kent Wang. And he was also former spokesperson for Ma Ying-jeou. And his writings are quite partisan in the sense that, uh, no, definitely I don't think he's pro-independence at all, Taiwan independence at all, uh, in the sense that he feels that uh, Taiwan is not only the ROC, but that any attempts to you know change it, and he believes the DPP will uh, change the name of it, is is considered uh, a red line to him. Now that said, <laughs> that said, for uh, you know, it is obvious to, to for China to say that you know uh, the KMT insisting that the ROC is a separate country from the PRC is too much for them is is already a bit much because that would alienate uh, many of the pan blues and of course it will alienate much of much of taiwan there was a my formosa poll that even suggested recently that uh you know status quo our current situation you know most uh, almost 80 percent of taiwanese consider that as already independent so you know china's drawing new lines here and obviously did not go well everyone you know was alert upset by it 
And so they deleted the article. Uh, but we also have other things that we have to keep in mind, which is China's increased aggression is no good. Indeed, they've arrested at least uh, two KMT members uh, who I will respect their family choices by not naming who they are. Uh, but also keep in mind that there are 150 Taiwanese people missing in China, half in the last six years. So the arbitrary detention, I think, really just shows that uh, you know China has just gone very aggressive. Now, if they don't keep this in check, they're going to consider everybody, maybe the, maybe their own members, uh, secretly pro-Taiwan independence forces. Yeah. Um, okay. Just very quickly, I thought it was very interesting that they also picked on Lin Wei Zhou. Um, Lin Wei Zhou is actually a very interesting character because he was uh, at one time he was DPP. Then he was part of a third party movement. He's been jumping in and out of political parties for years, so he's kind of an interesting character. Um, but I, I have a, a sneaking suspicion as to what's going on here. Um, there's, a, there's a certain group of deep blue KMT figures, um, the usual suspects, uh, Zhang Yajong and Chiu Yi and um, these guys, and new party types uh, who maintain pretty close relations with counterparts in China. So, for example, uh, those guys tend to be quoted in Global Times. Um, and there seems to be some... You'll notice that the propaganda that comes out of Global Times about Taiwan politics tends to echo the KMT's line, uh, but the deep, deep blue line. You'll use, they'll use the same vocabulary like green terror they'll use a lot of the not only the same terminology they'll use the same arguments and there's a certain element within the deep blue spectrum that is very very concerned about purity in their own ranks so for example uh recently there's been a lot of carping after uh for example hoyoe's post uh, on Facebook, where he basically told the KMT to go stuff itself on the referendums and said that people should make up their own minds on the referendum items, uh, there was a lot of uproar within the KMT talking about how, darkly talking about how he may be following the Lee Dunghui path, which, of course, if they actually bothered to look at opinion polling, Lee Dunghui is the most popular president in Taiwan's history. So they probably should be encouraging it, but apparently not. Um, so, and he's been called a traitor, and so on and so forth. And, and just yesterday, there was a uh, there was some talk of the of new party figures darkly complaining about uh, Ho Yui. Some he, there's three officials from his government have resigned to run for city council, and it's the you know the whole the whole family team trying to infiltrate the the city you know the the city council and there'll no longer be proper oversight of the government and all of this so uh, there there is definitely a deep blue element here and i think that they're corresponding and communicating and they're part of an echo chamber with certain elements over in china uh, including media outlets like the global times so i think this this is sort of part of that feedback loop it, I, it doesn't. This doesn't smell to me like it was ordered from on high. It smells to me like 
this is part of that feedback loop that normally just gets, they come out with it and because it's already considered safe because it's part of this. And this is one of the things that came out and the editors probably went, yeah, sure, that'll be fine. And then eventually someone maybe upstairs went, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't have put that in there. I, I don't think that this was one of these things that was put in because it was ordered top down. I think it was it was something that was created at a lower level, put up, and then they thought better of it later and pulled it down. Because, of course, so th- someone high up in Beijing could have realized it's alienating people they shouldn't have been alienating. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, I think, what finally happened, yeah. Yeah, indeed. And I think they, they went a little bit overboard. Uh, you know, Charles, Dr. Charles Chen uh, did uh, call for closer KMT ties to the United States. Granted, you know, I, I don't think the United States, uh, you know, all its officials are uh, blithe to not remember all the anti-U.S. things the KMT did. So, you know, Charles is sort of trying to shift the KMT a little bit more towards a less antagonistic stance towards the U.S., but that alone was to, to call him a secret Taiwan independence man. <laughs> Given his entire history and everything he's written over the years, that's extremely implausible. Again, I, I agree with Donovan 100%. Somebody in the middle level uh, overstepped too much. Uh, I just hope that China stops drinking its Kool-Aid's, uh, Kool-Aid because when you have all these academics and think tanks starting, going, uh, starting to go quite extreme, then the possibility for miscalculation only increases. And moving on now, and the Ministry of Education on Tuesday of this week announced that junior and senior high schools here in Taiwan will be given more autonomy to set their own schedules, including scrapping compulsory 7.30am study sessions. Now, the announcement by Education Minister Pan Wenzhong came nearly two years after it was first suggested that high school classes should begin later to give students more free time, and that resulted in the Education Ministry organising a series of public hearings and meetings with education experts. Experts. Now, according to the Education Minister, early morning self-study classes will become optional. The number of school flag-raising ceremonies and other morning activities will also be reduced and regulations requiring that all late arrivals by students be recorded are going to be wavered. And all that means that junior high and senior high school students now will apparently be required to arrive at their schools... Well, they can now... Re- arrive at their schools after 8.10am and the Education Ministry says the moves are aimed at better building students' time management abilities and the rules are set to be implemented at the beginning of the new school year in September. So Sean, junior and senior high school students now do not have to get up so early in the morning. Yeah, that, that's quite great because Taiwan has one of the longest school hours in the world. And schools are essentially now turned into daycare. Students show up to school at 7.30 a.m. having woken up around 6 to 6.30 sometimes, you know, uh, traveling all the way to school just to get there before 7.30. And then they have to stay there all day as late as 5 o'clock p.m. And then many of them, the majority, I would say, go to a cram school afterwards until it's 9 p.m. Then they have to repeat the cycle all over again. This is not healthy. Kids need time to sleep. Teenagers need time to rest. Uh, you know, if, if you ask what's one of the, the most popular ho- hobbies among lots of teenagers, they'll say, my favorite hobby, sleep, napping. <laughs> so it's, it's a good idea, I think. Plus, many studies show that teenagers aren't exactly early risers anyway. Uh, I'm sure we all remember in our teenage years waking up even at 9 o'clock uh, or actually 8 o'clock and getting to school. Um, you, quite not, you probably don't remember all the things in the day 
daytime. Uh, college students can, many college students can attest to this too. But worse, it's also a heavy burden on teachers. Teachers have to show up so early and be there the entire day just for these students. You know, uh, I, 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 dare I say, I think this is vestiges of an authoritarian era where you want your kids at school so you can just basically control them. It's too much. Uh, you know, but I'd also have to say that this removes the last major excuse for uh, changing the time zone. Wouldn't we all love to have an extra hour after we work of sunlight? Uh, so given that the sun goes down around 6 p.m. and also rises around 6 a.m. in Taiwan, uh, you know, if the student, they were saying like, oh, okay, you know, for the safety of our students, you know, that's one of the reasons we shouldn't change the time zone. But you know, now that they can wake up a little later, uh, then I would think it would benefit everybody in Taiwan if we could have an extra hour. Uh, many businesses open at 11 anyway. Many businesses, uh, retail businesses open at 11. And many regular businesses open at 9.30 in Taiwan. So, yeah, I think this is a good thing because having students wake up three hours ahead of the rest of Taiwan just to be babysat is really not fair. So, uh, and hopefully they'll do other changes too, like uh, less testing for everything in Taiwan. Uh, uh, you know, these are some of the things that Taiwan is uh, unfortunately notorious for. So I can't wait for this. Sounds great. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add. I think Sean's pretty well covered it. And I thought that was a very interesting point on the time zone. Uh, but I do think that unfortunately, this will only have an impact on students, uh, particularly the older ones who are able to get themselves to school. Um, in a lot of cases, I, uh, the situation may well be that they're still going to end up at their, at their schools at 8, 8.30 anyway, because their parents uh, bring them to school. And they have their own work schedules that are onerous and last ridiculously long hours. So in a lot of cases, but they may still be dropped off at the school uh, at ridiculously early hours just simply because their parents have uh, these kinds of schedules and they can't obviously take their kids to work. Now, in cases where kids can get themselves to school, uh, I don't, that's less the case with junior high school students, but you know, older high school students certainly, um, then that may give them a little bit more sleep time, a little bit more rest time. Um, uh, so this will be great for them, but I don't think this is going to actually impact all students, uh, only the ones who can get themselves to school or their parents don't, uh, don't have ridiculous work schedules of their own. And of course, Sean, it's middle school students also do long hours. Do you think the government could move this system to middle schools in the future? I think they should just move it to all of them. I mean, the, the, even if the students arrive early in Taiwan, virtually every uh, you know school outside in front, there's a breakfast shop. It's almost it's almost connected, you know. So you know, if you can't find one, simply look for a school. You'll definitely find a breakfast shop right next door. You know what? If the students have to arrive early because they can't bring themselves to school, uh, then hey, they could st spend more time having breakfast. So I think schools will still come up with uh, better processes. But ultimately, um, I think this is good for everybody because as, as I said earlier, this also affects the teachers that have to show up so early for no particular reason except to just babysit. Uh, this isn't a working system. You look at any other school around the world, uh, they don't start this early. They don't end that late. So, And it doesn't necessarily 
make better students anyway. Students could use this time to get more rest. They could use this time after school to study more. You know, they're not usually most kids are not morning kids anyway. So. All in all, yeah, I do hope they do that for junior high schools to, to set a precedent for everyone, you know, that this, is, this becomes the norm. Again, Donovan made a great point earlier about another topic. Taiwan, when it comes to the uh, policies, tends to slowly chip away, slowly open the door, you know. Uh, in this case, we should just open that door wide open right now. Well, I think, I think the time zone change, Sean, I think that might be very slowly, slowly. Oh, I think that's going to that's gonna <laughs> last a long time. <laughs> Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.